first reading is Romans 6, verse 1 to 14. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin may be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but prevent yourselves, present yourselves to God as those who have been brought to, from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Lord be with you. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Matthew. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. The Gospel of Christ. Tim will be preaching, but as since he is sick, he has pre-recorded his sermon and will be tuning in on the projection up above with the audio. I invite us now to be seated. Good morning, little T. I want to begin by saying how grieved I am to not be able to join you this morning for worship, not only for the joy of embodied worship, but also for the joy of bearing witness with you, the wonder of seeing nine people come to new life in Christ through the waters of baptism, through the wonders of 
modern technology. I'll be able to join you this morning and, and deliver this, this sermon, but it's just not the same. But as I begin, let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge and thank you for your presence with us. And we'd ask right now that your word would rule over us, your spirit would teach us, and that you being known, glorified, seen in our midst would be our first and our only concern. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the most beloved stories in the Bible is that of David and Goliath. In the story, you have these, these two armies amassed for war. The Israelites are on the slopes of one side of the valley, and the Philistines are on the slopes of the other side of the valley. They're at a standstill. Neither is wanting to attack, neither wanting to give up the high ground. But the Philistines, they have a plan to break open that deadlock. They send out their champion, Goliath, a giant of a man who's arrayed in the latest of armor and weaponry. And he descends down into the valley and he bellows his challenge. People of Israel, send out a champion for yourselves. If he beats me, well, then we'll become your slaves. But if I beat him, well, then you will become ours. The challenge sets fear loose in the Israelite camp. No one wants to take Goliath up on the challenge. Until a young man named David, who's there to bring supplies to his older brothers, too young to serve in the army, hears the challenge. And out of deep trust in God, steps up as Israel's champion to battle with Goliath. The story illustrates the dynamic of discipleship that Orvin was reflecting on last week. That as followers of Jesus, we are in Christ. You see, when, when David takes the battlefield, it can be said that the Israelites are in David. Meaning that whatever happens to David happens to them. If David loses, they lose. They become the a vassal state of the Philistines. If David wins, though, they win. They are in David. Whatever happens to David happens to them. Similarly, we are in Christ, says Paul. Whatever happens to Jesus happens to us. Now, that is the latest dynamic of discipleship we've been reflecting on in our series through Romans 5 through 8. Looking at the inner dynamics that drive our growth to maturity in Jesus, the inner dynamics that lead us to live in step with new creation, living in anticipation of the kingdom that God is bringing in Jesus. And Paul has been unpacking for us what it means when we say that we are in Christ. Now, for clarity's sake, Paul elsewhere puts it another way. He says, we are united Christ. United being a horticultural word, meaning that we're grafted into the roots of Jesus's life. And both images are pointing toward the same reality, that whatever happens to Jesus happens to us, for we are in him. We are united to him. Now, 
this this could be a bit of a foreign concept for us, right? So you could illustrate it another way. Imagine for a moment a person who's become incredibly wealthy. How did they accumulate that wealth? Well, through hard work and brilliance and diligence. Now this person gets married. How did the wealth come to the spouse? Through legal union. One person becomes wealthy through through diligence and hard work. The other, simply by legal union, being united to the other person in marriage. So when Paul says we are in him, we are united to him, he's saying whatever happens to Jesus happens to us. And so here are all the great benefits of being in Christ. In Christ, we have a new past. All of our past sin has been forgiven. In Christ, we have a new present. We've been adopted as beloved children of a heavenly father we're delighted in. We have a new future. We're made future heirs of God's glorious kingdom. In Christ, united to Christ, everything that happens to Jesus happens to us. This is a glorious, incredibly good news. For all of this comes about as an expression of God's bounteous love and grace for us in Jesus. Such news should set our hearts alight with gratitude and praise. Now, chapter 6, the, the, the section that was just read for us, opens with an objection articulated by someone who's scandalized by this understanding of grace. Come on, Paul. If this is what you're asking us to believe about grace, then why not sin? If God has already forgiven you of everything that you've ever done or ever will do, if our future is utterly secure in him, might as well keep on sinning so that grace can cover it all over. If grace is such a glorious thing, then might might as well experience more of it by sinning. It's a very natural critique, right? I mean, you might remember when the first Omicron wave hit, we moved into lockdown. And the TDSB said to high school students, whatever your marks were before the lockdown, we'll freeze them. You can't get any lower than that. Oh yeah, you can do your assignments and improve your marks, but nothing you do now can penalize you. Then there was an outcry from some corners, right? Because he, they said, you, you've just taken away all motivation from these kids to learn. The students will just not show up to class. If you say, Paul, that our relationship with God is based on grace alone, you will take away all motivation for being good. You'll just encourage people to sin. This teaching on grace, Paul, it's just dangerous. It's just license for sinning. So Paul, he backpedals. Well, you know, I I didn't mean it like that. Okay, okay. Grace can can cover the past. but, But now that we've been made right with God and Jesus, you need to live a good life. Try really hard. Exert some self-discipline. Get a solid dose of the law. Make sure that you do more good than not, or else your position with God will be lost, your, your future in jeopardy. But Paul doesn't backpedal, does he? 
but we often do. Right? I mean, most of us live our lives of faith as if grace were not enough. Yeah, grace can cover my past, but I need something other than grace to ensure that I'm changing, becoming new, becoming more like Jesus. And more often than not, we resort to fear and pride. You know, we think in fear, if I don't live a certain way, well, God's going to get me or at least not bless me. Or in pride, we say, if I don't live a certain way, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be like those people over there. And I don't want to be like those people over there. We often resort to fear and pride to change us. I remember years ago sitting with a woman who was exploring Christianity. And she was reflecting with me on how her Christian friends were living. And she said, my Catholic friends, they seem to be living differently than other people, but their lives are marked by fear and guilt. And then my Protestant friends, yeah, they, they believe in God's forgiveness and grace, but they don't seem to live any differently than anyone else. In fact, they're sometimes worse. So which one is right, she asked. Which one's right? Neither. Neither. For Paul here unpacks another way. He, he doesn't, in the face of this critique, backpedal. Instead, he doubles down. Won't this idea of grace just, just encourage people to sin? No, says Paul. By no means may it never be. Are you out of your minds? Of course not. Grace doesn't just make you right with God. Grace doesn't just justify. It also sanctifies. Grace changes you. Grace makes you new. Okay. But how? Well, says Paul, Jesus in his death has done something to both sin and death. Before Jesus' death, sin and death operated in one way. Now, after his death and resurrection, sin and death can no longer operate in the same way. And in Christ, united to Christ, your relationship with sin and death has also changed. Radically so. Huh? How? Well, Paul uses baptism here as, a, as an image to help us understand this. I think it's a great text for us to reflect on on a baptism Sunday where nine people are, or if you're in the evening service, have been baptized today. Now, now in some ways, this baptismal imagery invites us to first reflect on Jesus's baptism. And in our gospel reading, uh, Jesus comes to John to be baptized. And, and John, he's, he's scandalized by this. He says, I, I can't baptize you. You should be baptizing me. And Jesus responds, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. It's a very cryptic statement. You know, what does he mean by that? Well, most commentators will say, well, this is Jesus aligning himself with us, aligning himself with sinful humanity. His baptism is an act by which he becomes our representative. Similar to David descending onto the battlefield to represent his people. Jesus, by this act, is saying, I'm, I'm aligning myself with you. 
I'm here to represent you such that what happens to me happens for you. So what happens in Jesus? Well, Paul has already told us that, that death came into the world because of sin. The wages of sin is death, he will go on to say. So when Jesus takes the weight of human sin to the cross, he dies our death. In Christ, we have paid the penalty for our sin. Death no longer has ultimate claim over us. Hallelujah. Not only that, Jesus has borne on the cross our sinful humanity, our old self. That old self has been crucified with Christ. In Christ, we've been rescued from slavery to sin. We were once only able to sin, and now we're free. Free not to sin. Hallelujah. Dying our death, carrying our body of sin into the grave, he has risen again to new life, and our life is hidden in him. Our future is secure in him. A new humanity is one in him. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And we lay a hold of that by faith, a faith that gets expressed in an act of obedience. Believe and be baptized. You see, baptism, what we say, is a sacrament, meaning that it is an outward sign of an inward and spiritual reality. And we say that, that baptism is a sign of new birth, and it is, but only because it is first a sign of death. So the candidates go down into the water, are drowned, as it were, in Christ, baptized into his death, their old self buried with him, so that they would might be united to him in his death, they might also be united to him in his resurrected life. In that expression of faith, in that act of obedience in baptism, we are found in Christ. And our relationship with sin and death radically shifts. Now again, a bit of a foreign concept, right? So it's perhaps a, an illustration would help. A sermon on this text, uh, Daryl Johnson puts it this way. He says, let's say you owe RBC Visa $3,000. As long as you owe that $3,000, you are alive to Royal Bank. Royal Bank has a claim on you. It has you in its clutches. But once the debt is paid, RBC no longer has a claim on you. You are dead to RBC. Hallelujah, right? Or say you owe the CRA $8,000. As long as you owe that debt, you are alive to the CRA. You are its slave, so to speak. It has its clutches in you. Imagine Jesus coming in and paying that $8,000. Because the debt is paid, CRA no longer has a claim on you. You are dead to CRA. Hallelujah. In Christ, by faith, by grace, through faith, our relationship with sin and death radically shifts. We are free from death's ultimate claim, for sin's wages have already been paid at the cross in Jesus. We are free from sin's reign, for our body of sin has been crucified with Christ. Now, does that mean we'll never sin again? Of course not. Wait, we have and will. It is not impossible to sin, 
but it is now certainly utterly incongruent to do so. We died to sin. Why would we want to live in it anymore? We are no longer a slave to sin, so we no longer have to respond to it. We, we do and will, but we no longer have to. Okay, but how? How does this glorious grace change us, make us new? Well, Paul now moves there. In verse 11, he says, you, you must now consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. If you want to see change wrought by God's grace, consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God. An historical event, I think, provides some insight into this. On January the 1st of 1863, the U.S. government, led by Abraham Lincoln, issued its proclamation of emancipation. They abolished slavery in America. The announcement traveled from Washington through the valleys of Virginia, down into the Carolinas, and over to the plantations in Georgia, Mississippi, Alabama, where there was so much slavery. The headlines read, Slavery Abolished. But history tells us that grievously a great majority of slaves in the South continued to live exactly as they had done before, as if there had been no emancipation, as though they had never been set free. Apparently, one Alabama slave was asked what he thought of Abraham Lincoln, and he replied, I don't know nothing about Abraham Lincoln, except that they say he set us free, but I don't know nothing about that either. A war had been fought and won. A legal document had been drafted and signed. Slaves were legally free. But most continued to live out their lives without knowing anything about it experientially. They kept serving the same master. Their legal position had changed, but their experience grievously had not. In a series of sermons on the sixth chapter of Romans, D.M. Lloyd-Jones, reflecting on this grievous historical reality, says this. Every follower of Jesus is often found in that same condition. It's the reason we don't see change in our lives. Why? Because we haven't realized who we are in Christ. We haven't realized that we've been set free from slavery to sin and death. Take hold of what is true of you. Consider yourselves dead to sin, alive to God. There's a story told from the life of St. Augustine. And he had quite a reputation for being enslaved to his lustful desires. He came to faith in Jesus. He comes alive to God. And not long after, he's traveling to a town where uh, one of his mistresses lived. And she sees him, and, and she seeks to reignite the passion between them. And while he's very kind to her, he doesn't respond to her advances. And she's confused by his behavior, as though she thinks to herself, maybe, maybe he doesn't recognize me. So she calls out after him, Augustine, it is me. 
And he turns around and he, he says, I know, but it is not me. Consider yourself dead to sin, alive to God. Now, not only must we consider ourselves differently in light of who we are in Christ, we must also act out of that new reality. Uh, one of the commentators invites us to consider it this way. Imagine that you have a trust fund that's put into your name. Now, unless you draw on it, it's not going to change your actual financial position. The trust fund should mean the end to all of your financial worlds, but it won't have any effect unless you use it. We are dead to sin. Unless we act on this great privilege, it will not automatically be realized in our experience. We have to appropriate. How do we appropriate it? Well, in the final verses of our text, Paul essentially says, your members are going to be used for something. Your voice, your hands, your ears, your eyes, your feet, your members are going to be used for something. And because you've been set free from the reign of sin, you now have a choice. You can turn those members over to be used by sin, or you can turn those members over to be used by God for righteousness sake. So what are you going to turn your members over to? Being in Christ means that we can turn to, to such things as, as bitterness, anger, deceit, hate, lust, greed, unforgiveness, and say, I don't need to give in to you anymore. I don't need to give my members over to your use. Oh, yes, you do, they respond. And more than that, you actually want to. Oh, yeah, you're right. I, I do want to, but, but you are wrong. You're forgetting the good news. I don't have to give in. Jesus Christ is dead to you, and I've been baptized into him. I'm united to him in his death and resurrection. You have no claim on him. And because I am in him, you have no claim on me either. I am free, free to turn my members over to be instruments of righteousness, instruments of, of peace, reconciliation, justice, love, mercy, to join in the glorious symphony of new creation that God is bringing in Jesus. Grace is, yes, utterly scandalous, but grace is no license to sin. Grace is the only true driver of our becoming more like Jesus. For the only motivation for the follower of Jesus is gratitude. Gratitude for what God has done for us in Jesus. For in him, united to him, death no longer has ultimate claim on us. In him, united to him, we are no longer under the reign of sin. We have been set free not to sin. So may we this day reflect on the glorious riches of his grace. For by his scandalous grace, we are set free. By his scandalous grace, we are made new. To the glory of God the Father. Amen and amen. 
You've just listened to a podcast from Little Trinity Church in Toronto. Please check out our website at www.littletrinity.org to find out more about our ministries and services.